Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word is real, it's true, it's active, it's alive. It pierces where it needs to pierce and cuts open what needs to be cut open to, to heal and to restore and to cut out what is not of you and to bring healing to it. I love your word. I love the truth of your word. I love the fact that it doesn't change, that you are true yesterday, today, and forever. So thank you for your word. May it, may it effectively uh, challenge and may the mark that you're aiming for today um, be really hit by the power of your word and the truth of your word. And I pray this through Jesus. Amen. So I've had fun. My wife wonders if I actually miss her when she's gone. She is the type that we, we, we've adjusted somewhat, but I could go home and there'll be a TV on downstairs, a TV on in the bedroom, serious radio playing, and she'll be looking at something on her laptop in the kitchen making cookies. And it's just constant noise. And they you know, noise. And, you know, I, I, we have four kids and they were all noisy. And so I'm used to lots of noise. But now that they've all gone, man, I like quiet. I love quiet. I was at home yesterday all by myself. I had to go and do a little bit of shopping. And then I came back. And aside from putting on my laptop, just put on some worship music, there wasn't a sound in the house. I heard the popping sound of the refrigerator when the ice was cracking inside it. I mean, it was just so, I live in the country. It was so quiet. I love it. Over the last few weeks, I've been, you know, I sometimes I, I read a verse. I, I know a verse. It's like, yeah, I know what this means. But then sometimes something just happens with that verse, and, and a part of it just stops me, and I think, I really don't know what that means. And part of the verse that was standing out with me was Micah 6, verse 8, where it says, He has showed you, a man, showed you, O Doug, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? I love that verse. But somehow I just got parked on what's it like to walk humbly with God. And when I ask myself those questions, I think, well, certainly not going to teach on it because I really don't know how to describe what it is. Maybe, maybe I don't really even know exactly what it is to walk humbly with God. Mercy, justice, man. A few days ago, I was hanging out with a bunch of... <laughs> I love sitting on the front row with everybody young. Last, last week, I was with under 35s holding a weekend. I was by far twice everybody's age. It was some, well, not quite, but you know what I'm saying. And it was like, wow, I am old, but I didn't feel that old, really. I, I felt mostly old, but not that old. But it was quite amazing just to be with them. And then we had a get-together last uh, Thursday night with the guys that wanted to do some follow-up and follow-through. And a guy showed up that has wandered away from the Lord, was very dear to my heart, and I haven't seen him, had no idea he was going to be there. And this happens regularly. He's from Jericho Road, and he was very dear to my brother before he died. And he couldn't handle life, and he just went back to the streets. But on Thursday night, he came to this get-together. He had no idea I'd be there. I had no idea he would be there. And I was shocked at my first response. In the past, I would have judged him. How could you leave what God has done? And instantly, we ran up and embraced and held each other and held each other, and he wept. And I'm thinking... Where does that come from? It's the work of God in my life. 
seeing my sin, seeing my pain, seeing my brokenness, and seeing the redemption of Christ. And so I get mercy, I get justice, but what's it like to actually walk humbly with God? So I began to study passages all through the Bible. I Googled, I love Google. No wonder why bookstores don't exist. I never use any of my books and resources. I use my Bible, and man, I just look it up, and I get 500 passages all at once, and it's like, wow, it's fantastic. And so I Googled what it's like to walk with God. Well, there's an endless amount of verses and studies and characters, you know, walk with God and all these sorts of things. And so I was just absolutely overwhelmed by it. So it led me to so many passages. But eventually I found myself in 1 Peter. And as I was reading 1 Peter, I was just immersed in 1 Peter and kept reading 1 Peter and going on and on and on in 1 Peter. All within mind of sharing something today. I even listened to Dan's message. I listened to it a couple times. And uh, I love his mannerisms. He's, he's just got neat little quirkyisms, and, and they're just so funny when you hear them. It's just like, that's a pure Dan, you know, and his, his laughing, and, and I absolutely love him. Um, it also caused me to go into a place of confession and repentance when you're speaking on repentance and confession, and it's like, wow, I was having my own time of confession, and it's all rolling along quite well, you know? I'm just kind of getting things together and pages and, you know, as I said, Linda's away and I'm, I'm home by myself and I start to look around and think, am I writing a book? Which I hope I never do because I don't really like reading that much and I can't imagine reading my own book. <laughs> but, and the house, the kids, David's kids were over with Jamie, they were over on Friday. It still looks like they were there and that, that for me is just that's impossible. I always put everything back away, and I vacuum, and I vacuum before they come, I vacuum after they come. It still looks like they've been there. If a robber breaks in, I'll think, <laughs> these people have moved out. There's no way Doug could be here. I'd never leave it like that. But I just, it didn't matter. What I wanted to do yesterday was take a Sabbath, an actual day away, and spend it with God. And to be honest, I've never done that. I've done it on retreats but I've never done it at my home. So I walked past the Lego, walked past this, saw this, just left it. It's still there. My wife will not believe it. She has no problem walking by it, trust me, but I do. So last night I'm sitting at the kitchen table and I want to show you my notes. We are getting somewhere, in case you're worried. All of this is stuff I was working on yesterday. See all those sheets of paper? I write out everything. And I had all of these papers, and they're just kind of literally, just kind of strewn all over the kitchen table. And uh, to be honest, it's about midnight now. I've had all day yesterday. And it's about midnight, and it's like, this doesn't make any sense to me, Lord. What do you want? I had prayed earlier. I had asked God to show me what he wanted. And I'll, I'll be honest with you that there's a, there's a subtle pressure of how you're supposed to act when you preach or when you teach. And I'm not saying you put it on. We put it on ourselves. There's a certain way that I should be, and Brent Russet down the street, you know, he would be this way, and I know Brent and love him, and Dan's this way, and 
you've just got to, you've got to come up with something profound. And Mike Sparrow's brain is like 50 times the size of mine, and he's going to be here. And I have to say something profound, but I couldn't find anything profound. It was still all just sheets of paper. So I'd been reading, studying, listening, praying, confessing, humbling myself, desiring, Father, what is it you want? It wasn't clear, so I went to bed. Set my alarm for 5.30. Said, you can speak to me through the night. I don't know how to share. I don't know how to put this together. The ultimate fear would be that I'm going to stand up here and demonstrate how to be humbled. Walk humbly with your God. Hi, I'm here. Thanks for the worship. I have one verse and nothing else to say. God bless you. Let's go and rescue the kids. Dan will have the easiest time with Sunday school, and that's it. But instead, I, um, I prayed, and I said, Father, what is your heart for us at Northgate today? Just as I was going to bed, some scriptures began to pop into place and make sense. I wake up, and I become very aware that throughout the night, there's a song, there's usually a worship song that just plays in my head all night long. And this morning, I got up and I journaled and said, I called, you answered, and you came to my rescue, and I just want to be where you are. I really don't want to be here to impress anybody. I could come up with something really wise and amazing, but if it's not the heart of God, it's just me. So I looked at the rest of that song, and it's falling on my knees in worship, giving all to seek your face, Lord. All I am is yours. My whole life, I place in your hands. God of mercy, humbled, I bow down. Yeah, that's how I walk with you. In your presence at your throne, I called, you answered, and you came to my rescue. I just want to be where you are. I woke up this morning with that song and very clearly sensed, yes, I'm beginning to show you how to walk humbly with me. Yesterday, as I was praying, somewhere in the middle of the afternoon, probably 10 hours earlier before I went through all the sheets of paper trying to figure out really what I was going to be talking about, the Lord just took me back to three very specific thoughts that he gave me. I don't know why I added so much to it, but I just really want to just go back to those simple thoughts. And so I know that you're a church here that reads passages and we follow through and I have the NLT and you use the New King James and so tried to accommodate some of that, but it may frustrate you if you're trying to find a passage. I've got verses here and there, but I know by the end, to the glory of God, it will really bring about a clear picture of what he wants to show us this morning. So I've written out some of the scriptures you're welcome to follow. I will tell you where they are. But the very first thing is I was praying specifically for us today. The very first thing that I felt God was saying that is hard for us was, that there's no, uh, the, the gospel is not uh, an option open to, begin, to be negotiated with. Now, that's not where my brain goes. That's not a natural thought for me, but as I pondered it, I thought, it really is what God is giving me today to share. Jesus says, I'm the way, in the Gospel of John, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. You mean you are the only way 
Yes. Do you know why he's the only way? Because Jesus is the only one that says you can't earn your way. Every other religion says you've got to earn your way and you've got to earn my love. And Jesus said, all you can do is receive my love. There is no other way but to receive what I have done. When I was away a couple weekends ago, a man said he wanted to know more about Jesus. I didn't know anything about his background. It was on one of these weekends. And he said, I'm a Buddhist. I know nothing about Jesus. Fascinating. What are you doing at a Jesus event? Man, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. I'm going to tell you, sir, that as much as, as you are doing all of these efforts, and I applaud you for all of your efforts, they don't do anything to change what God has done through Jesus. That out of his love for you and out of his love for me, he came to rescue me from me. And he died for me because he loves me and gave himself for me. It was fascinating for him. I did not find any antagonism on his part. There was no offense on his part. I said, can I pray with you? He said, yes, please pray. I prayed that Jesus would reveal who he is to this man who had never heard of Jesus until that weekend. He's following up. We still do email. He wants to know more of this Jesus who you can't work to earn his approval. We have it, and we have to just receive it. So my studies in 1 Peter were not all to vain. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, it goes on to say, and if you want to turn to that, man, it's a powerful passage. It says of Jesus, referring to this gospel, he himself bore our sins. That is every sin that I've ever committed, every sin that's ever been committed to me, against me, it's the sins that I will commit today, and it's the sins in the future. He bore every sin in his body on the tree, on the cross. What's the result of that? This passage goes on to say that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. I never knew that I could die to sin, in spite of what this word says. And I'm not saying to you, if you ask David or Jamie or you ask my wife or any of my kids, oh, they'll verify that I still sin. But it doesn't control me the way it used to. I was bound to sin. Even when I came to faith in Christ, I couldn't get free from habitual sins. I was locked in this darkness. But now I can see and I can truly say before you today that I know what it's like to die to sin and to live for righteousness. Freed from the past, freed from the shame, freed from what used to just control me and the consequences of what I had done and the pain and the, and the, the things that had been done to me, freed from them and pardoned to live out a new life in right standing, in righteousness. I used to easily excuse it. All guys do it. We all struggle with it. It's just a guy thing. My confession was more like, yeah, I don't even really need to go over that one again because it just, we, we all do it. Jesus provides a way for us to repent, and it was just a, it was a habitual thing. But I've been really challenged recently in part by some teaching through church renewal that really nailed me, and it said this one thought that 99% obedience is called rebellion. Like, what? I figured 80% obedience was off the charts, way better than most of you. 
getting, but you know, <laughs> we all think that, don't we? Well, how about 90%? What about 99%? But what about the 1% that just I hold on to and it just, 1% poison in water is not safe drinking water. He wants my all, all of me, for him. He's provided a way of escape. So if he's provided a way of escape, then why do I choose to stay in sin? I choose because I like it. I want it. Why do I want it? A passage goes on to say, for by his stripes, for what he bore for me at the cross, the agony he bore for me at the cross, I'm healed. What am I healed of? I'm healed of this desire that wants sin more than him. When we sin, and this is the grace that God has given me for Jericho Road guys and for, for my own life, sin is just me trying to medicate the pain inside of me, the loss inside of me. Sin is saying, Jesus, you're not enough. Sin is saying, God, there's got to be more, and I can't cope with it, so I'm going to choose this over you. But as we let the healer come, the one who bore all our sins on the cross, as we let him come and the truth of the gospel transform us, then that need inside of me is healed by the love of God so that I don't want to do it anymore. I used to try, oh man, I tried so hard to not sin. Oh, a thousand ways. And I regularly blew it. So I finally just got discouraged and thought it's hopeless. I can't stop doing it. But as the love of God through the power of Christ has transformed this mess inside of me and is transforming me, I don't want to do it anymore. That's what it's like to be free from it. I'm not bound like I was. For you, like me, verse 25, we were like sheep going astray, but he has returned us himself, to the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. He has returned us. I was lost, but he has brought me back to the fold, to him, to the shepherd, the overseer of my souls, of, my, of our souls. Before I was married, my wife was a missionary in Bolivia, and I went down to Bolivia to visit her. I'd never been out of North America in my life. If you know anything about Bolivia, the airport's at 13,000 feet. That's a whole other story. We went to Lake Titicaca, the, the highest navigable lake in, I think, the world. And the air was very thin. The skies were just so bright you couldn't even see. It was blinding. And we'd rented a boat, a couple other missionaries, herself and me. We rented a little boat. We went off into the lake. We went to a little island that hasn't changed 400 years before Christ. People were there with the alpaca, and they were spinning the wool in their mouths, and we just went back. There was timelessness. And I heard a pan flute, beautiful pan flute, if you've heard that. And the shepherd was playing music to his sheep. And they were just all huddled around. This beautiful scene, untouched by time. The sheep, they didn't care about us at all. They were with the shepherd. They were safe. And he was singing over them, playing over them. They knew him. And they clung near him. What a beautiful scene. What a picture what Jesus is referring to here. The second thing that God was saying 
for us, I believe, as I was praying and really just listening for him yesterday, was just about his love and his heart to draw us from where we are, from draws from myself, from just seeing me into himself, beyond the limits of what I see and know of me, into the vastness of who he created me to be and the unlimitedness of all of that. I chuckle. Dan is, Dan is, he is so polite. He's way, he's so Canadian. Yeah. Uh, he wants to apologize if you have to pray out loud. Like, that's really sweet. That's very nice. But I don't know. I, I seem to get signed up for things of God that are completely out of my comfort zone all the time. I, I don't want to do most of what I do. Like, it, it's not my sweet zone. But he pushes me into it so that I can see what he can do in me. And I'm amazed what he does in me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's four verses I want to look at. Verses 14, 15, 17, and 21. I love how Paul writes it in chapter 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for the love of God compels us. I love the fact that it's the love of God that compels us. That if one died for all, then all died. Verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Verse 17 goes on, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. All things. All things have been made new. Verse 21, for he, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for me, that I, that we, might become the righteousness of God in him. This verse really challenged me when I was struggling with how is it possible to change? How is it possible to be free? Those who know him will no longer live for themselves, but they will shed all of that and live for the one faithful one, so unchanging. Ageless one, you're my rock of peace. Blessed be your name when you take it all away or when you give it in abundance. Blessed be your name. It is not I who live, but Christ lives in me. So we don't live for ourselves any longer. But this love of Christ transforms us. See, that's the gospel that can't be negotiated. He doesn't want me to stay the way I was. I am not that man any longer. We have pictures, obviously, of our wedding. We have pictures of me as a teenager. I will guarantee that everybody that looks at me has no idea who I am. I had long, blondish brown hair, curled under a big, thick beard. God. I show these pictures, people mock. Who is that? They see my wife. Oh, there's your wife. Who's her first husband? That was me. It's amazing. But the other thing I love about those pictures, to be quite honest, is the fact that I'm not that man. By the grace and power and the love of God, I'm not that man anymore. The gospel's transformed me. It's changed me. This life I live, sorry, Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God 
loved me and gave himself for me. I used to believe the lies of the enemy. I had more faith in the lies of the enemy than in the truth of God. I would fail and he would say, see, you failed again. It's hopeless, isn't it? And I would agree. Because I looked around me and saw it was. I'll never change. I'll never be free. Give up. Sometimes I did. Sometimes I just went back into it and said, it's just too hard. I can't do this. And I see myself in situations where I think, yeah, I've just gone back to the old way. Man, the beauty of what Dan was teaching about, if I confess, he's faithful, forgives, heals, renews, restores. Confess by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me that I am no longer that man. Colossians 3 and 3, for I've died and my true life is hidden with Christ in God. So the question I really have wrestled with and come to the conclusion, the answer to, is who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe me? Or am I going to believe the one who died for me? Who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of a sudden, verses like the just will live by faith take on a whole new perspective to me. I cannot change who I am, but I can receive the change that Christ makes in me. I have tried so hard. So much of my past, I've just disdained who I was. And by the love of Christ, I'm able to embrace and say, thank you for making me exactly who I am. I don't want to try to be like anybody else. I just want to receive who I am and the freedom that that brings. For I have died and my true life is hidden with Christ and God. I love the truth of this word and I pray that truth over each of us today. Who are you going to believe? The one who lies and deceives is called the father of lies. Or the one who is the true father, father of light, and loves you and gave himself for you. The third thing that I was praying, I trust it's not 10 after 12 or this will be a really disastrous time for all of us. <laughs> it isn't, yeah, but good, let's ignore it. Third thing is I was praying, and, and this is, you know, we all have our little spiel that we talk about, and we have our little sweet spots. This is not mine. As I was praying, it was like the Lord was just saying clearly to me, I'm coming again. And, you know, I used to, I used to believe that. I hear all the time as a kid. We had those horrifying movies that I'd come home, and my mom and dad weren't home, and oh, he's come, and I've been left behind, and I was saved 15,000 times because of it. I'm not referring to those movies. But I am referring to the fact that there's this sense that we've forgotten he's coming back. And we've gotten so engaged in a world that is so temporal, that really is meaningless. We put all our effort and might into living for today and forgetting that it is just, it's just a blip in time. And as I get older, and I see loved ones die. Man, we were together three weeks ago with my former youth group. Is that not crazy? 49 years we've been together. That's crazy. We still love each other. We still get together. 
We're horrified at how we look. We all look like each other's parents. Ah, you look like your dad. <laughs> ah. But the other part of it that's a true reality is that um, I prayed for one of them. And I won't see her again. She'll be in heaven next time I see her. She's dying of cancer. Some have already died. This is the stage in life I'm in right now. Is it morbid? My brother's died. Is it morbid? No. When you have this hope that this is just a blip in time, man, I don't want to put my energy in just living here. I want to put it all in the fact that there's an eternity waiting for those who love him and are called by his name. There's an eternity waiting. And Jesus says, I'm coming again. I was thinking last night about Ephesians for a bride who has made herself ready without wrinkle, without spot. What a glorious thought. There's a reading that is not my own. I say that because as I read it, you'll be thinking, he could not have written that, and you're right, I couldn't have. But I actually wrote out some quotes of it just to understand what it's like in the concept of our culture today. We don't really understand when Jesus is talking about the virgins and the lamps and you know the light, the window and the light, and sorry, the light in the window, and about a bridegroom coming back for his bride. What does that really mean for us? So I want to take you back into a little bit of the history, and I just wrote some of it out for us, and we'll refer to it. And this is the last of the three points, in case you're kind of figuring out how long is this going to go. The bride and the bridegroom. Here's a part that just really amazes me. In the Jewish culture, the bridegroom always takes the initiative. I used to think I found Christ. I didn't find him. He searched for me. So it says the bridegroom takes the initiative. He leaves his father's home and comes to the home of the bride. And listen to this. He doesn't care how prepared she is when he comes. He accepts the way that she is, and he comes to propose marriage because he loves her. Boy, isn't that just a taste of what Jesus came for? He loves her. He doesn't care what she looks like. He comes to her. The next thing the bridegroom does is he, he wears a leather pouch in which there are three things when he arrives at the prospective bride's home. He uses this little pouch to propose to her. The first thing is a marriage contract that she has to agree to and sign. A second thing is a wine cup. And the third thing are bridal gifts of jewels. So the marriage contract, it contains the provisions, the requirements, and the price to be paid for the bride. The bride does not pay anything. This is the price to be paid for the bride. And that price to be paid was set by the bridegroom's father. Listen to this line. It was the redeeming value of the bride. What is yours and my redeeming value? His son. Isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus is referring to here. The redeeming value of you and me was the life of his son. That's quite a price. No higher price could be paid. The next thing that happens is the setting out of the cup, the wine cup. And by setting out the cup, the groom indicates to the bride, I chose you. And then he waits for her response. If she doesn't drink from the cup, it says she is rejecting his proposal. 
If she did drink from it, it means she's announcing her acceptance of the terms of his offer. I choose you, I receive you. So she drinks from the cup, and by the sharing of this cup, the union actually is made legal. What does that mean? Well, we'll talk a bit more about that in a second here. The gifts that the bridegroom bring could be an engagement ring, a promise. It would be jewels that would adorn her as she waits for him. See, the bridegroom would then leave to go and prepare a place for her. Just sounds exactly what Jesus has done for us. He's left us with these jewels. He's left us with his spirit. He's left us with giftings. But he's gone to go and prepare a place for us, and he will come again. And when that place is ready, he will come back for her. In the period of their culture, it was usually a period of one to three years. But he comes back only when the father of the bridegroom decides all the preparations are completed and ready. And then he would announce it was time for the groom to go and receive his bride. The Father announces it's time. It's exactly what Jesus says. No one knows the day or the hour when Jesus is going to come, but he is coming, and the Father knows. And he will announce it. So meanwhile, the bride, what does she do for a year or for three? She wears a veil that says to everybody around her, I am out of circulation. Don't even consider me. I belong to him. How do we do that? What does it look like for us to be that way? I'm out of circulation, world. I'm waiting for my bridegroom to come. I'm not available to you. I'm only available to him. And that's what she declares to all around. She says, I'm giving up my single ways, and I'm preparing myself just for him. I surrender all of my rights for you. I give myself completely to you. She would also follow some daily disciplines. She would keep the lamp in her window with an extra supply of oil and make sure that her lamp never ran out. And every day she would trim the wick so that the lamp would burn brightly. There would be nothing that would keep that flame from burning brightly. Nothing got in the way of that bright flame. None of us jump into deep sins. I met with a man who was struggling with an adulterous affair, got caught just in the nick of time. It had been five years in the making before he succumbed to it with one woman. Five years. Little bits are how we get one over to the enemy. It's usually never just, hey, go out and do this. No. A little bit at a time, a little bit. So in this parable or in this teaching of the Jewish culture, it's Keep the, the wick trimmed so there's nothing. There's no impurity. There's nothing. She would also prepare her wedding gown, take ritual baths to keep clean, to keep pure. When the time was right and the father would announce to the groom, it's time, the groom's father would yell, it's time. And I want to tell you that there's no greater sound than I think our mortal bodies would ever hear when we know that our Father has said, it's time, 
and Jesus is coming. So the groom rushes out with all of his friends to get his bride. And his friends precede the groom, shouting, Behold, behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. And that is all the warning the bride gets of his coming. There's no internet. There's nothing. I mean, that's it. That's all she gets. And so the groom would come for her, and he'd look up into the window and see, is the lamp still lit? Is the wick still trimmed? Is the flame still burning brightly? If the light was out, it meant that her love had grown cold and that she had turned her affections elsewhere. She wasn't even looking for him. But if the light was glowing, he knew that she was prepared and that her love for him was aflame. And she was waiting for him to come. What I want to leave us with today is there's many, many, many voices that are saying the gospel is not true. That it can be watered down, that it can be changed, that it can be accommodated to whatever you want it to be. I make no apology for the fact that Jesus said, I am the way. There is no other way because there can't be any other way. I cannot earn what I can only receive. I cannot make him love me. He already loves me. He came for me. Even when I wasn't looking for him, he came for me. I love the fact that the gospel transforms us. It doesn't leave me. Man, when I got saved, it was my ticket to heaven, and it's because I didn't want to go to hell. And that's really all it was, and it was figure it out, do your best. And there was no transformation in my life at all. But to see the truth of the gospel is it transforms me. My life is hidden with Christ in God. As I understand his love for me, it changes me. It frees me. And I become more and more like him. Till that day when I see him face to face. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come. Are you and I waiting for his coming? Are we longing? I had the privilege of being near people when they're dying. It's a weird thing to say, but you realize how fast life is. And the joy. I might have told you this before, but I just love this story. My wife's little, really super, super, super conservative Christian lady, never exuberant in any way, just her eyes radiated love for Jesus. She's dying, and she's surrounded by very, 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 very conservative people, more conservative than what I grew up in. And she's never raised her hands in her life. I trust, trust me, she's never raised her hands in her life, ever. But there, as she's dying, they watch her, and this sweet little lady, oh, oh, I see him. Oh, but not yet. And they told us she literally died with her hands extended. I see him. And you could almost see it in the casket. It's like they probably had to bust her arms down. They wouldn't want to bury her with her hands raised for eternity. Oh, my goodness. I'm just kidding. What a joy. Do you see, that's really the deepest, the deepest longing in my heart is for that. I will see him face to face. 
And until then, I want to cast aside everything that keeps me from fully knowing him today. I used to care so much about what mattered. The world said what you would think of me. I care what you think, but not as much as I care what he thinks. He loves me so much that he gave himself for me. And he's coming again. Let's pray. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let us not lose that hope, Father, ever. Let us not get sidetracked by all the world around us and by things that really don't matter. Let us cast aside everything that would keep us from running that race till the very end. Let us live our lives holy, purely for you. Our lamps trimmed, ready, watching, awaiting your return. And we pray this because Jesus makes it possible. And we believe in you, not in ourselves. The communion elements seem to take on a whole different aspect when we understand the symbolism behind it. That is, we take this cup. We symbolize, I choose you because you chose me. And I receive your choosing. I receive what you've done for me at the cross. So we're going to break for, take some communion. We're going to worship and you know the routine far better than I do, so you do what comes to you naturally, and I'll follow you. But we do want to have communion. It just seems to so follow this beautiful thought of the bridegroom coming for us. And this is just a taste. And I love that Jesus says, hey, someday we're going to do this face to face. What a table that will be. Someday. But not yet. So until he comes, Remember him in his blood, body broken for us, bloodshed for us. So let's worship, and as we do, go and take the elements, and then we'll pray together.